Welcome to podcast number 90 of My Favorite Detective Stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Kelly Riddle. Kelly is a private investigator operating out of San Antonio, Texas. He's been a private investigator since 1989. Prior to that, he worked in law enforcement. He was the past president of the Texas Association of Licensed Investigators, as well as the founder and president of the Council of Association Leaders. He founded and is the president of the Association of Christian Investigators, and was an advisory board member of the Florida Association of Private Investigators since 2015. He is a member of over 20 different trade associations and private investigation associations throughout the United States. He's won awards for writing, the Nally Editor's Publishers Award in 2004, the PI Magazine PI of the Year, NAES, National Association of Investigative Specialists, one of the top 25 PIs of the 20th century. He is uh, the NAES PI of the Year in 1998 and was also a certified investigator award from Texas Association of Legal Investigators in 2011. He built his business from five investigators in 1989 to now 61 investigators throughout the United States. He does investigations throughout the world, and I count him as being a colleague and a friend, and I look forward to this interview. Welcome to My Favorite Detective Stories. My Favorite Detective Stories features successful private investigators. They offer insights into their careers and advice to those just starting out or to those who are struggling. You will learn from the best. Of course, we cannot finish the show without asking them to share their favorite detective story. On alternating weeks, you will hear from crime fiction writers who discuss their latest books and what makes their fictional detectives tick. Throughout my investigative career spanning five decades, I cannot think of a time that I didn't have a good crime novel on my coffee table or bedstand. We will also talk about their favorite authors as well. As a working investigator, coach, and writer, I hope to bring inspiration, information, and entertainment in the areas that interest me most. Gather around my campfire as I invite you to listen in. This episode is brought to you by my recently published books for private investigators. How to launch your private investigation business. How to market your private investigation business. And how to boost your private investigation business. It also appears as a three-book set in How to Rocket Your Private Investigation Business, the complete series. All can be found at your favorite online retailers in ebook or softcover. Did you know that I also coach private investigators how to survive and thrive in business? Visit my website at www.thepicoach.com. That is thepicoach.com to learn more. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the show. Hey, John, good to be here with you, and I uh, hope your weather's doing uh, fairly well since it's winter. <laughs> a wise guy. What's it like down there in San Antonio today? Uh, it's a little rainy, you know, which is good, because last time you and I had a conversation, we had cedar pollen with driving my sinus nuts, so uh, it's kind of washing all that out, so I'm returning to normal. Yeah, but it made a uh, bonanza for all the car washes down in your neck of the woods, huh? That's right. Yeah, where there's, you know, there's always something good out of something negative. <laughs> That's true. So thank you for mentioning, yeah, the weather here today on January 17th, 2020, as we record this, a nice Friday afternoon. Bright sunshine here in uh, Milford, Connecticut, and uh, just happy to talk about the fact that the polar vortex has finally arrived, and uh, we are now in winter. So uh, even the squirrels and the robins are saying, say what? 
you know, they're having their issues with today. But anyway, uh, I digress. But investigators, we always talk about the weather because we live in it. You know, it's our world. True. You know, if you have to stand on a doorstep in a bad neighborhood, you got to know, you know, what the weather's like that day. Anyhow, so speaking of which, um, we both started our careers a long time ago, but tonight or today we're going to be talking about yours. So take me way back to the beginning and tell me about how you got started as a private investigator and where you, from whence you came. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you and I have been around a long time. We're almost dinosaurs at this point. <laughs> you know, what keeps everybody going. I, uh, I started way back when uh, in law enforcement. So I'm a Texan and I uh, left Texas, went to uh, the University of North Alabama in Florence, Alabama, where uh, I got into law enforcement. I finished my degree in criminal justice and uh, put in seven years total in law enforcement, got accepted by the FBI, the officer's candidate school and two or three other departments and decided I'd had enough of law enforcement. So I moved back to Texas went to work for an insurance company, which I know is near and dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. And uh, from that, uh, I, I was what is now called an SIU. They didn't have special investigative units back then. I was actually a licensed adjuster doing investigations for the insurance company. And I was hired away uh, after a couple of years by Business Risk International, which had 26 offices throughout the world. And I was uh, there to set up their insurance division. We were knocking a home run, had more work than we could almost handle, and um, I saw the writing on the wall. They were having monetary issues, mm -hmm. so I uh, took the, my assistant, who I had brought on, and he and I went and started this company. Uh, therefore, the first three letters of our first name, Kelly and Mark, became Kelmar, and uh, that was back in 1989. So I did it because I had to have a job, and that company uh, went out of business. Uh, actually, they sold out to Pinkerton's uh, mm -hmm. in nine months. So, you know, I never thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. never thought I was going to write a book, and you know the, you, you know how that goes. Mm -hmm. You and I have both been in that uh, movie. But uh, now I have been – I've owned, owned this company for be 31 years in April, and I just finished my 11th book and I'm working on my 12th. So you and I have very similar backgrounds. Sure. Sure. And had a lot of fun along the way. No doubt. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. I know you came from an insurance background. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, you know, very, very similar. Um, mine was slightly different. Um, I, I'd been uh, SIU, or before that even, the Insurance Crime Prevention Institute, which was uh, the predecessor to the insurance crime, uh, National Insurance Crime Bureau. And then I went into uh, doing SIU work. And when I saw how much I was paying out for private investigators to do uh, investigative work right around the, you know, the, the 100 miles where I lived, I said, you know what, I could do that. So in 97, I pulled my own ticket and independent special investigations was born. Mm -hmm. But a lot like you, um, I had to learn a lot about business and I had to learn a lot about running the business of a private investigations firm. So following back, following back to you, I want to uh, tell me about some of the lessons you learned along the way about, um, you know, working the job, but then also doing the work in the business. Well, you know, that uh, I'm kind of like you, you know, I, I've seen insurance companies uh, about every seven to 10 years, they cycle back and, you know, they say that they've got too much overhead, so they outsource everything. And then, you know, seven to 10 years later, they say spending too much money on vendors, so let's bring people back in and uh, have more employees. So that's a cycle that I didn't want to be in. 
And uh, when I started this business, because I had worked for uh, an insurance company, I had a ready-made clientele. So the very first month that I was in business, we billed out $28,000. And again, this is back in 1989. So, mm-hmm. you know, I thought I had hit the golden, you know, home run there. And um, very quickly found out that even though this was a insurance company that was mandated by the state of Texas to provide workers cop, they went into receivership. And so about three months later, I figured out that I needed to get out and market. Wow. And then you, but at least you had a little bit of lead time and maybe some uh, cases still in the hopper to give you a little bit of cash flow to bridge the gap. Yeah. Fortunately, you know, I had uh, put a lot of that money back and, uh, you know, had a, had a little nest egg uh, to, to work with. But, you know, I started the business with my personal computer, which, uh, uh, you know, and that and, and mm-hmm. my personal video camera. And so we started with four investigators and uh, I had just brought on a fifth one when that happened. And so, you know, it makes you take a step back and, and regroup. And again, uh, you know, I didn't retire from anything. So whatever retirement I get, because that's what I made. So, I, you know, mother of necessity. And I had to get out and hustle, had to provide for me and my family and those people that were dependent upon me. And uh, so I did. And we just grew the company from that point on, uh, I guess, in 1993, my partner, uh, he finished his PhD in marriage and family counseling, and that's what he wanted to go do. So uh, we parted ways about that time, and uh, I was on my own and have been on my own ever since. And, you know, it's just there's a lot of things that you have to go through in business, and, and part of it is that. You know, I've been through audit. Uh, you know, I've had my top four investigators that, that left me all at one time and a lot, a lot of different hurdles that from the outside, if you're doing it right, everybody thinks it's easy and they want to emulate it. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. And are any of them still in business? Oh, no. No. Two of them went in business together, and they were out of business within nine months. One of them went to Oklahoma and opened up an agency. And, uh, you know, I I laughed because he called me and he humbled himself a little bit and said, look, where do you get license plates? You know, I need to run some license plates. So, I mean, you know, even the basic information such as that, he he didn't know because all he had done is surveillance. Right. and then the other one got out of the business within a year and it hasn't been in the business since. Hmm. It's interesting, isn't it? So, no, but along the way, you know, I'm just thinking about your situation back then, you know, four adding five, a family, no retirement, you know, you're invested in your business and you've got to make some decisions and you got to make them quick. But not only that, you got to put in the time, you got to put in the effort and you got to try stuff. So... I'm not sure. I'm sure that you didn't, you know, get it exactly right every single time. But uh, like any of us that have survived through the years, we we kind of find our way along, you know, and we find what works and what doesn't work. You want to just mention that a little bit? Yeah, that's very true. I mean, um, you know, I started off as the secretary. I mean, I had my own caseload, and I would go out, you know, put in, you know, eight to ten hours of surveillance, and then come back to the office and uh, do everybody's reports. And I happen to be very, very fast at typing. Uh, and so I was knocking out the reports, doing my own caseload. And, you know, once we got grounded again, after that first hurdle, I guess about nine months into it, we hired our first secretary. Mm-hmm. And about two and a half, three years into it, uh, I hired my first case manager. Yep. And, you know, that it's an overhead that you typically cannot charge off to the client. So, mm-hmm. you know, I just went from having to make sure that I had a business and then I grew it to a point where I needed a case manager. And now you go, oh, man, I now i got to go make up that overhead. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you know, when I took myself out of the field, that I was the first case manager, essentially. Okay. So to make up my salary to, to, you know, put an investigator in my position. And then, you know, you add another case manager and add another one, and, and that, that's all overhead. Sure. And, you know, there has to be enough billings. You have to bill enough per case to handle your fixed and variable expenses and still uh, have a profit from which uh, the governments, and I use the word in the plural, are, are take theirs, and then... <laughs> You get what's left over. Um, no, for sure. I understand that. And, you know, being able to, to, to look at that and say, uh, how do I take the risk to do that? Because uh, I'm like, uh, I'm one of the big billing machines here, but now you take yourself off the street. Now you're not only uh, not billing, but you're also uh, now an expense to the company. And uh, it has to be all factored in. You have to have enough billable hours coming in from enough employees with, an, you know, with enough of a profit margin on each of their cases to be able to justify yourself, your secretary, the lights, the licensing, you know, and all your other expenses. So you're right. You're absolutely, absolutely right. But too many guys, and I think you, you can see this too, too many guys and gals uh, tend to kind of stop at the point where they are everything. And then they might add an associate or they might have a couple subcontractors, but they stop at that point. And so everything is still manageable, but you look at their, uh, time allotments and you find that they're just doing so much, uh, other stuff besides the fulfillment. And it, it just is, it's their ceiling and it's self, it's self-inflicted. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm kind of a student of time management. You know, I I catch myself all the time doing two or three things at one time. Uh, and you know, depending on on who you listen to, you know, men are not really supposed to be good at multi. But I have four computers on my desk and two phones and my cell phone and everything else. You know, and I'm I'm a multitasker. And mm. if I wasn't. I wouldn't get done half of what, uh, you know, I've, I've been able to do because, you know, as you know, I have a PI uh, school, which started off as an actual school and then the internet came and it all went the way of the internet and it's online at this point, but I, you know, I have that and I have my uh, books that I write and mm -hmm. my seminars that I do. So there's no way to do any, anything other than just an, a single investigation you can't multitask. Exactly. But, you know, I think some of the things that um, uh, it's hard, it's almost counterintuitive. But one of the first things you, you tell somebody that wants to grow a business, that the first thing that you have to do, whether it's pest control or selling used cars or private investigations, is that you have to get out of fulfillment yourself. You have to you have to become the supervisor, the manager, the you know the business, uh, the owner. You have to take on all those other hats and let other people do fulfillment in a satisfactory fashion. And that and a lot of people just stop right at that point. They say, "No, I didn't take a PI license to to become a business person. I I took out a PI license to continue to do the kind of uh, investigative work I wanted to do, but get paid for it." Unfortunately, and we both know this that you can do you can be great at fulfillment but if you're not doing any of the business stuff or you're not doing any marketing to get more business in the door after an initial blast you're scratching your head wondering you know where when's the phone going to ring right yeah absolutely there's no no doubt about that whatsoever you know and uh, i used to say that i'm a pi who was also a businessman but now i say i'm a businessman who happens to be a pi yep um, and that's the reality of things because as much as I love doing investigation, there's no way to grow a company if you're going to be 
the only person doing an investigation. I mean, there's no way, you know, exponentially it doesn't work. No. And so you have to decide early on. And, you know, in, in some of the books I've written and seminars I, I give, I talk to that, you know, it's like you need to decide where you want to go with your business. Mm-hmm. Are you going to actually decide where you want this to go? And at some point, are you going to have something to sell? Because, you know, I actually have contracts and we do free employment. And I have contracts with different cities and government entities. So when you have contracts, you know, it backs up your business, not just your goodwill. So you now have something to sell further on down the road. But you can't just be a, a one-man shop because, you know, really all you have to sell is your goodwill. True. Now, I, I will say that uh, some uh, some people I know in our business have it so that the business can run without them, that they literally uh, can look at uh, a dashboard from anywhere in the world and they can see how their business is doing right up to the present moment. They can drill down into various cases. They can look at their financials. They can do everything. Now, if they choose to work an occasional case, it's because they, they want to work it and it's not because they have to work and they can go out there and they can work that one case. And it doesn't take away from being the owner of the company because the, the company still runs without them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's essentially where I am to some degree. I mean, I've got 61 investigators and we're licensed from Florida all the way to California and, you know, up the East Coast and everything else. And so we have a case management system that we use and I can do exactly like you're talking about. I can look at it at any given moment, see where we are. Uh, and I take the really high profile cases. So I still put my fingers, you know, in the pie and we do uh, bug sweeps, electronic bug sweeps. So mm-hmm. uh, that's a very intricate part of our business. So I have a, a team of us that are trained to do that and we have the equipment to do that. So I still do some of those kind of things, but I'm not out there on a day to day basis. You know, I just don't have time to do that. And it wouldn't be the most efficient thing for the business. No, I understand. And all of it goes into a calendar and you plan it. You plan uh, all the aspects of your business. And then you also uh, plan the time when you're going to be out there doing your thing, for lack of a better word. You know, and and uh, that's neat because uh, it's freedom, too, because, you know, you're not uh, standing by the. uh, post office box waiting for the, the person on the other side of the, uh, in the, in the mail facility to, to whether or not they're going to put a check in your, or two in your, in your mail slot and then run to the bank and, uh, deposit them as quickly as possible so that you can play the float for payroll. Right. Yeah. yeah. But 61 investigators, I think you have a little bit of, um, you're at that point where, uh, as your business ebbs and flows, uh, there are busy days for everybody and there's some uh, quieter days for other people, but you have enough work coming in the door. Oh my Lord. To be able to, uh, to justify 60, 61 employees, plus your staff, plus, you know, your management team and still do it. But you, you mentioned a couple other things there besides, you know, the investigations part of the business. And I want to know Kelly a little bit more. So tell me more about, um, the, 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 uh, the school, tell me more about, the webinars or seminars and tell me more about the books. I'd love to hear all about all of those. And the last thing, don't forget, we're going to talk about association membership because that is so key to uh, growing in our business. So just, just go ahead. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. So the, the PI school, like I said, started off as an actual classroom uh, where I taught uh, two or three days 
uh, a weekend, basically uh, once a month, and we would have 40 to 50 people every time. And the internet came along, and that's the way of the world. So all of our courses are online now through the PI Institute of Education. And, uh, you know, a lot of the states require continuing education, and so they're approved in, in most of those states. And it's a seamless bill. You know, it's one of those things that the business owner, you try to have residual income. So uh, that's happening with very little hands-on from, you know, me or my staff at this point. And that's really what you want to get to as much residual income as you can. So that was one thing. The books, um, I wrote my first book in 19, published my first book in 1994 and uh, had a publisher, distributor, agent, all that, you know, all that good stuff and was out doing autograph sessions in bookstores and, and those kind of things. And my distributor and my agent both retired the same year. Mm. So I bought the, the, the rights to that book back and I self-published. And so going forward, that's what I've done. And, you know, you make more money doing that, number one. And number two, over the years, people don't read like they used to. And if they do, it's just as many ebooks now. So I use the book for marketing. Well, sure. I've got them on insurance. I've got them on surveillance. I've got them on all different nursing home views, you know. So I send it to a, you know, a claims adjuster or to an attorney that, that specializes in that area. And they may throw your business card away, but they're not going to throw your book away. That's true. And, and, and to your point, there's a phrase that I understand perfectly well now, and it's called books as a business card. And that's what my books in, in my, for my PI coaching business, I, I wrote several books and they are my books as a business card. They let people know that I'm a, I'm a coach now and I'm helping private investigators with their business. And uh, that the books are there, I guess, as a, as a common playbook that we can talk from the same, we can, we can run the same plays cause we're not, we're saying the same things. But anyway, you also have a, a more recent book that you've just published just recently. So tell me about that book. I really want to hear about it. And I'm sure my listeners do too. Thank you, John. Um, yeah, the, my 11th book is called things they didn't tell you about starting a PI business. Mm -hmm. It tells, you know, talks about, should I be a corporation and sole proprietor? You know, what happens, you know, with, with starting up as far as licensing goes? Uh, what do I expect if I get audited by my licensing department or the IRS or the uh, taxing agency? Uh, you know, it goes through all these hurdles that when I first wrote my first book in 94, there was only two other PIs out at the time that had how-to books. I was the third one, and that was an unusual thing at that moment in time. So there wasn't a lot of mentoring capabilities out there. You didn't have them. You know, the Internet wasn't uh, prolific, and so connecting with other PIs is very difficult. Right. And in this day and age, you know, I know you, you're a strong mentor. You know, you're, you're, you're ethical, and you're a good person for people to turn to. And mm -hmm. likewise, you know, one of, the, one of the state associations that I, be, I belong to, 24 state associations, or not state, but 24 associations. Yep. International and national. And one of them today, uh, as a matter of fact, was talking about some things that had gone wrong uh, with, you know, hiring an, an, an investigator as a subcontractor. And they were talking about online about how there needed to be mentoring. And really, there kind of is because that's what your associations are for. So, you know, those people that are new in the business, they need to get involved in their state associations. And, and that's where you're going to get cultivating, cultivating of education, uh, mentorship, you know, other PIs that you can trust to help you out. And I'm kind of preaching to the choir with you because I know you're mm -hmm. a strong advocate of that. 
Oh, for sure. And, and one of the things that uh, I'll give you, I'll give an example that is one that is directly related to both you and I. Um, we both had been uh, around National Association of Legal Investigators for years. Uh, you'd been around Tally. I think you were a founding member of Tally, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. I was uh, president. I wasn't, I wasn't one of the original founders, but I was president not long after. Sure. So here I am. I, I need a job done south of the border. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of in investigators I can contact, you know, with the Internet. Eh, you know, sure. You just type in the zip code or in that case, you know, Mexico. And uh, you could come up with somebody. But no, I wasn't. I just contacted you. I had to find a person uh, that was an heir to a rather sizable amount of money out of uh, San Diego. And there was a uh, clock ticking on that, that it was going to, the monies were going to a sheet to the state of California if it had not been for uh, uh, whoever found it, finding it, and then tasking me to try to find it. Well, I, I didn't, I, I couldn't do anything in, in Mexico. I didn't have anything in Mexico. So who did I go to? I went to Kelly, Kelly Riddle. And you had your people on the ground find this lady in owns a gas station in Guadalajara, Mexico, and actually worked with me and the uh, attorney to help and their attorney to understand uh, what was needed to uh, have them sign our contract so we could tell them where the estate was and how they could uh, they could get the funds. And it all worked out for the best. But had it not been for. Uh, my connection to you and the good people that you had working for you at the time, and maybe still do, uh, that, that we never could have done that. And you made some money on the case. I made some money on the case. The people down in Guadalajara that was running a, ga a gas station had no clue this money was available for them in the United States. And uh, it all worked out great for everybody. That was a fun case, actually. Uh, I enjoyed working with you on that. And, uh, you know, it really with a different twist on some of the things that we have done uh, over the past, you know, because you and I both know you find people for different reasons. Usually it's to interview them about a car accident or life insurance policy or whatever. Mm -hmm. That was a little bit of a twist, which was fun. Yes. And all ethical, all above board. You know, we did everything honorably. There was nothing there. You know, they, they were wondering if there was some kind of a scheme on our part, because, you know, here we are, you know, telling them where there's money, but, Oh, we, we can't tell you exactly where it, until you signed our contract. And that protected us. And it allowed us to do everything that we did. And sure enough, everything worked perfectly. I still get Christmas cards, by the way, from the attorney. Is that right? Yes, I do. I still, to this day, honest to God, I don't know how many years that's been. But yeah, it was fun. But it, it, it came because uh, it, it, the success of the case came about because you and I took the time to show up at association meetings to get to know each other, to get to know each other's background, to know um, that we could be trusted and know that we had people working for us that could do the job that needed to be done. And uh, how many more times do, um, do uh, cases get assigned around the country without any kind of vetting of the investigator? And then everything goes south. And now you've lost a customer because the weakest link in the chain was the fact that you didn't have a, a trusted associate on the other end to help you out. I mean, am I right? Absolutely. You know, and that's, that's extremely important because, uh, you know, being in business, if you're the business owner, you do a lot to cultivate a client market, go out there and beat the bushes. And when you get a client, 
last thing you want to do is turn them, turn that over to an individual that messed it up. And uh, being around associations where you can physically meet the person, get to know them, look them in the eye, extremely important because you're essentially turning your client over to them, even though they're working under your guidance and everything else, you know, you're at their mercy to some degree. Sure. And, and if you don't have that, and if it's just a, a name you pulled off of Google without any type of vetting, um, shame on you. I don't know how long, uh, I don't know how many of those cases does it take, uh, to, uh, go out of business when you, when a lot of your business is, is based upon saying that you're national uh, without having the, the, um, the, 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 the link at the other end of the chain being just as strong as you are. So, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, was, at, I was speaking at a conference in Alabama back right before Christmas. And one of the speakers that was also there is Richard Brooks. I know, you know, he's mm -hmm. in Mississippi and his presentation was on this very issue of subcontracting. And, and he really made a point to what you just said, that there's a lot of companies that tout the fact that they're national. And in fact, they get these contracts with insurance companies and then they turn right around and subcontract, uh, subcontract it out to the local guy. And, uh, you know, they've got the chutzpah to get the national contracts. And I know you and I have talked about this in the past. I just prefer not to do that. Somewhere along the way, somebody needed to be kicked in the knee because they came up with the, the unfortunate concept that, you know, the investigator goes out today and, and spends eight to 10 hours on surveillance. And then, you know, they have to go home, write the report and, and upload the video. It doesn't make any difference if it, if it was three hours of video it has to be uploaded today so that they can have it to the client first thing in the morning. Yeah. On, on the client's dashboard. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, uh, in a sense, kudos to them for, for creating a, uh, a national marketing uh, plan where they could, they could let and, uh, sell, um, national contracts, uh, for a one, two year period of time, promising that, you know, coverage around every zip code around the United States, kudos for them. But the bottom line is, um, when they have to reach out into the into the far recesses of our country uh, for uh, good private investigators, then they have to pay uh, those investigators um, cents on the dollar in order to uh, have um, to be able to profit themselves, sending and, and then sending the work in. And maybe maybe some very good investigators work on those plans. I'm not going to argue with it, but how long can those investigators live on, um, you know, on, on eating? I like to think about it as like, uh, a lion, uh, goes out and they can eat, um, worms or they can hunt down the antelope. So, you know, uh, the investigator that's living off of, uh, subcontract jobs at cents on a dollar for what they normally would charge are burning up a lot of time and energy, uh, working for somebody else. Is it steady income in a sense, but is it, does it really meet their needs? And on the other hand, um, investigators that will take on that work at that rate of pay, um, I'm not going to say anything negative about them, but you get what you pay for, if you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it, you know, feast or famine. I mean, a lot of investigators do the court-appointed defense cases, and it's kind of the same thing. You know, they, they have the court dictates how much they power. Right. Using 50, 55, 60, you know, using 50, 55. 
And the problem with those cases is they have to wait in most instances until the case settles before they get paid. So they've got money and expenses tied up in there. It can be a year or two years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so it's kind of the same thing. It's a good place for newbies in the industry to start, but it's not where you want to end up. And it's very similar to what you're talking about with subcontracting. You know, uh, with me, I subcontract out to other PIs. I mean, that's the way you do it in this business. You know, you, sure. you call me for the Mexico thing. I call you for other cases. I mean, you work hand in hand and you work with people that you trust. And it's a professional courtesy to give other investigators a discount. Mm-hmm. You know, if that's all your business is based around, then, then you know, you said that's probably not where you want to be in the long haul. No. But the fact is that, you know, the way I look at it, when I subcontract out to another a private investigator, say in Oshkosh or in, you know, Tuscaloosa, um, they will they will many times offer me a discount and I thank them for that. Um, but it's with the understanding that they didn't have to do any marketing for that client. I came to them. So think about that delta, the difference between what they might charge and what they will charge is that they didn't have to pay, do any marketing for that work. Uh, well, and and on that point, you know, I always tell them other investigators, if someone does give you a discount, pay their invoice as soon as you get it. You know I mean? They were, they were nice enough to give you a discount. Right. They did a good job. So at least you can do is pay them. No, you're right. No. And and getting back to the court appointed stuff, you think up here in Connecticut, you know, every, you know, it's, it's a rich state. No, no doubt about it. I'm not going to say anything about that. Yeah. It's a rich state. However, the court, court appointed work for criminal is uh, $35 an hour. I mean, people's lives are hanging in the balance. Um, and because, uh, and because in some cases the, um, the, uh, the public defender's office is conflicted out of the case that they can't, a special, um, defender or assigned counsel as they're now called gets to choose their own private investigator to do the work. And it's $35 an hour. And uh, you're right, and you basically don't build a case until it's over with. So that can go on for a year, year and a half in terms of how far you're going out there. But I found that uh, in the beginning, as a newbie doing uh, criminal defense investigation work, two things. One, I I had to upskill my skill sets, even though I had been a uh, a law enforcement official many, many years ago, working to uncover reasonable doubt was something different. So one of the first things I did was, well, I bought uh, Brandon Parent's book on uncovering reasonable doubt. And then I did take on some of those court-appointed cases with some of the attorneys that I wanted to work with. They got a chance to kick my tires, and they got to try me out on the state's dime, and they were happy, so they would hire me to do work on their pay clients. And that worked out nice. But uh, as as time went on and my reputation grew, uh, I came to a situation where I had to limit the number of assigned counsel cases I was working a year. And I allowed myself one a quarter, one 40-hour case a quarter, or 160 hours a year. And that roughly was, if I did 1,760 hours a year, billable hours, and 160 of them were uh, of this case, of this nature, I thought of those as being uh, like a tie. Um, 10% of my time was going to working on those kind of cases. And it, and it made it easy for me also to turn other ones down saying, look, I don't have the time for it. I'm only, I can only allot myself um, 40 hours a quarter to work on this stuff because, well, 
my uh, my the, the people that I owe money to, like the uh, utilities or my mortgage, they they weren't going to take um, thirty cents on the dollar <laughs> just because that client was paying me thirty cents on the dollar. So, in a sense, I was still able to do some, and I was able to kind of pick and choose what I wanted to work on. But it was by choice, and I called it low bono instead of pro bono. But anyway, enough about me. But you're absolutely right. It's a good starter thing to get you in and get your name out there to get going. Great place to to um, to make a name for yourself. Do a good job and uh, your business can grow as a result of it. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But it's, you know, at some point you, you can't keep eating off of that. And just like you can't keep eating off of the subcontract jobs. If you're, you know, if you have a firm, you got to go out and market your own business so you can get faster paying and higher paying clients. So anyway, well, so tell me about where you're at now and, and you got some things going on. You're, you're going to be a speaker uh, in the next couple of weeks. Tell me about those things. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you and I both spend a lot of time at conferences and uh, we cultivate really good relationships. So I'm going to be uh, next week, as a matter of fact, at the National Association of Legal Investigators, or NALI, mm-hmm. in uh, St. Petersburg, St. Pete Beach in Florida. And that's January 23rd to uh, 24th. And so I'm, I'm basically speaking at a conference every month uh, through May and uh, I think 10 out of 12 months. And the next one after that will be the uh, FAPI, Florida Association of Private Investigators. That's February 5th through the 7th. And I'm actually hosting in September the conference for the Council of International Investigators, which will be held here in San Antonio. So that's going to be fun. A lot oh. of work on a conference. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh no. I mean, I, I, I think about that and I shake my head. Uh, there's just – and but, but, however – you have done something to rather than curse the darkness, you've lit, lit a candle in that. You've also been part of and created an association of and so association leaders so that not everybody has to recreate the wheel every single time. So why don't you talk about that a little bit, Kelly? That's very true. I've created several uh, associations, that one being uh, the Council of International Invest, uh, excuse me, Council of Association Leaders, or COAL, C-O-A-L. And when I was getting ready to step down as the president of the Texas Association, I had looked around and, and had seen how a lot of times there's a vacuum where you have boards that, you know, at least half, if not the entire board will step out. You have new members come in, and so you have a tendency to not have a lot of wisdom that comes with uh, having been on the board over a period of time. So you lose a lot of history associated with why you did certain things and why you didn't do them. And so I said, you know what? Anyone that's ever been on a board in any position can be a part of this. And we are going to be, uh, you know, a sounding board for association. Because when I was president, you know, I started, uh, you know, getting discounts with the car rentals and the staples and all those kind of places. And, and uh, you know, those kind of things you can help other associations if you just let them know that, that you're out there and that you have an association of former leaders. That was one. And uh, the, the one that I started back in 1997, it's called the Association of Christian Investigators. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one that I started because... Myself and Ralph Thomas, who was the founder of the National Association of Investigative Specialists, NAIS, in Austin, Texas. 
he uh, asked me to speak at a conference, and I was standing outside talking to him and in between conferences, uh, speakers, and he said, what do you think the biggest problem is with our industry right now? And I said, really? It's the, you know, it's our own tripping over our own self, basically, because at the time there was a lot of TV shows about, you know, the former police officer that got kicked off the force and, you know, alcoholic or whatever and sleeping on a couch in his office and kind of a sleazy hint to it. Mm-hmm. We need to have a little bit better uh, prolific just character for the whole industry. And uh, I said, you know, I've been thinking about this and starting an association, you know, of, of Christian investigators. But I said, I know four ordained uh, pastors who would, you know, they're also like the eyes, and they would probably be the ones that would be the one to do this. I'm certainly not uh, the biggest ro- uh, scholar when it comes to the Bible, but, you know, I know the Bible and mm-hmm. have a heart for it. And so he kind of just kept prodding me and prodding me until uh, <laughs> I, I started it. You know, that's what mentors do. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, and I think that your point is well taken at, uh, uh, I, I help private investigators, uh, with their websites and doing refreshes. That's the word I want to use refresh. And there are times when I, I talk to a private investigator in this state or a private investigator in that state, and I'll just pull up Google private investigator plus the name of the state. And then I'll get a list of, after the paid ads, <laughs> I'll get a list of uh, private investigators that, you know, have a, a website there. And, you know, it, um, it's like knuckle draggers are for you or no knuckle draggers for you. And I, I won't get into some of the things that I see. And it just I shake my head and I still see that play, guys and gals still playing into the mystique, the movie mystique. You know, the Sam Spade, the trench coat, you know, the the bottle of whiskey in the desk drawer. Um, Do you really need to have a gun displayed on your homepage? Um, You know, I I kind of I have my own issues with that. But you know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm not going to. I'm not going to get real crazy in in my own uh, machinations over that. But I will tell you, to this day, um, we are still not portrayed very well in the um, the movies. Uh, we're still not portrayed very well on television. Shady is a word I think that best describes uh, most of the private investigators or um, certainly ones that uh, operate in the gray area, more on the gray on the blacks, uh, black side than the white. And certainly not to the point where we come across as professionals, as partners in in work with the client, you know, and certainly in a business um, atmosphere, you know, and it just we still have a lot of stuff to work on. But the people that keep playing into that mystique, I think just are dragging. They're not they're not uh, they're an anchor to say it, not a sale on the private investigations industry. But that's my own two cents. Well, I'm, I'm in agreement with that, you know, and that's one of the things that I do in some of my uh, talk is I actually have, you know, stereotype uh, logos of PIs, you know, with the badge and the, the magnifying glass and the mm-hmm. you know, Sherlock Holmes hat and all that kind of stuff. So in the next slide, you have crisp, beautiful, business-like logos, you know? Right. And, uh, so, you know, it just depends on which, which way you want to go with your business. A lot of law enforcement, ex-law enforcement, they can't get away from the badges and all that stuff. And I get that having been in law enforcement, but it doesn't translate well into into the private sector. Sure. And certainly not uh, to the needs of uh, the people that you have to communicate with. And then, oh, and then the other thing, I'm only going to briefly touch on this. 
on the one or two occasions when I've had to reach out to um, a specific municipality that wasn't covered by an association uh, member or somebody that gave me a referral, and I just needed one little thing done. I mean, something that, you know, uh, the Geico commercial that even a caveman could do. And I, I get the, uh, and the, the way the phone is answered, it, you think that I was talking to the third shift burglary squad, you know? <laughs> Hoda, what do you want? <laughs> no, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Excuse me, sir. I'm looking for a professional investigator. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Write the reports like that. Yeah. Oh, my. You know, and I'm just like, anyhow. But we could go on. Listen, I'm, I'm so happy that you, you came on today, Kelly. I'm really happy. I'm, I'm glad that, you know, you're firing on all engines. You're having a good time. You know, uh, you built your business up to a point where you can do what you want to do, work on what you want to work on. I'm still, you know, look, you still are looking at your financials. You still have a, a company strategy. You probably had a, a, a marketing plan that, that for 2020 written out. You have a business plan. You're looking at your budget versus actuals. You're looking at comparing this year versus last. I mean, you're doing all the right things, but I just, you know, I just felt that, you know, if I, if I didn't talk to you, other investigators, other listeners wouldn't understand that, you know, it's fun to be out there on the street, but there's also a business side that has to be taken care of. And if you want to um, survive and thrive, you have to give the business its proper due. Otherwise, um, maybe you should go work for somebody else as an investigator, if that's what you want to do, you know? I agree with you 100%. It is a business and, and uh, you, know, you have to survive. And as you and I know, the statistics, you know, uh, what is it, a third uh, usually fail within the first three years. So mm. got to be a business. Yeah, it's a little higher than that. Um, uh, PIs are tracking at a rate about similar as other businesses that uh, you start up a business this year and next year um, close to 75% of those businesses will be out of business. Uh, the the, the uh, insurance companies that do errors and emissions insurance for private investigators say I think the rate's even higher than that. So they're not getting their renewals after the two-year period or when the people's licenses expire. If it's a one-year license, they cancel their insurance after their license is over. If it's a two-year license, they might cancel their insurance after two years. But yeah, it's a little higher than that. So it's 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 a little bit more serious than that. And quite frankly, just you know, hanging out a shingle and thinking that you're going to make oodles of money using your investigative skills, a lot harder. It's a lot easier said than done. Mystique is there. Um, and it only takes a couple, you know, people in their circle to, to make it look easy, to make it think that everybody can do it. But there's a lot of hard work that goes into running a business where you provide investigative services. You and I are both proof of that. Um, yeah, and I wish you the best of luck. How can people get in touch with you, Kelly? How do they want to learn more about you, your books, your seminars, your coaching, your, your training classes, and where you're going to be in your upcoming uh, conferences? Appreciate it, John. Uh, they can call me uh, toll free at 888-873-1714. Uh, best way to get me is through my email, which is kelly at kelmarglobal.com. K-E-L-L-Y at K-E-L-M-A-R global.com. My website, kelmarglobal.com. Yes, it is. I thank you so much for being on, and I certainly appreciate you taking the time with me today, Kelly. Appreciate you as always, John. You do a lot of good for our industry, and I thank you for it. Well, you're quite welcome, sir. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. My guest next week is August Norman. Originally from central Indiana, thriller and mystery author August Norman has called Los Angeles home, writing for or appearing in movies, television, stage productions, web series, and even commercial advertising. A lover and champion of crime fiction, August regularly attends the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference and is an active member of the Mystery Writers of America, the International Thriller Writers, and the Sisters in Crime. Come and Get Me, August's debut novel featuring investigative journalist Caitlin Bergman, was listed in Suspense Magazine's Best of 2019 issue in the debut category, and Sins of the Mother, the second in the Caitlin Berglund series, will be released in September 2020 by Crooked Lane Books. Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to hear other great detective stories, please go to the website and click on our podcast page. There you'll find the backlist. Now, you're probably asking, John, what about your own stories? Do you have any? Sure enough, I do, and they are available to you free as a download right to your inbox. I have eight short stories and eight vignettes in a book titled Mugshots, My Favorite Detective Stories. Now, here's my ask. If you were either informed, inspired, or entertained by the stories today, don't be bashful. Share this link with your friends. Better still, go to the iTunes website and leave a review. It's the best way to grow the circle around our campaign. If you have any questions, please contact me through the website, www.johnhoda.com. J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Thanks so much, and have a great day. 